the stories being shared at the moment is a lot about gold rush and that's that's great I that's what I learned in school too I didn't really learn about my Yukon First Nations history in school I learned it from my elders growing up I read a lot of the oral history that was documented throughout the years therefore it's important to me to share this knowledge not only to my people but to visitors that are coming here to give them a good concept of who we are as Yukon First Nations people. This is Yukon North of Ordinary, the podcast. We share a more in-depth take on the most popular stories from our print magazine, showcasing the territory's extraordinary people, culture, and outdoors. I'm your host, Karen McCall. Every summer, people paddle the Yukon River from Whitehorse to Dawson City. About halfway through the journey, shortly after passing the mouth of the Pelly River, they reach Fort Selkirk. The old Hudson's Bay trading post, with its mix of restored and falling down buildings, is an interesting place to visit. But if you're not plying the Yukon River, the historic site is hard to get to. The nearest road goes through Pelly Crossing, about 40 kilometres away. Pelly is home to about 400 people, mostly citizens of the Selkirk First Nation, including Terry Lee Isaac. For many years, she dreamed of taking tourists to Fort Selkirk. For her, it's a special place. She spent time there growing up. Before it became a trading post in 1848, and long before settlers arrived in the Yukon, the site was an important place for the northern Tushone people. Terry Lee, who works as the heritage manager for her First Nation, knows this better than most. She also knows why it's important for First Nations people to tell their own stories. So, in 2021, she launched Tushone Tours, offering boat transportation and tours of the village. Here's Terry Lee. Hi, my name is Terry Lee Isaac. I'm from Pelly Crossing, a member of the Selkirk First Nation. I'm born in Whitehorse, lived in the Yukon uh, all of my life, and currently I am the owner of Tushone Tours. Yeah, can you tell me why did you decide you wanted to start this business? So I worked for many years as the in the heritage department. Um, I began working as an interpreter for our cultural center, the Big Jonathan Heritage Center. Side note: I neglected to ask Terry Lee more about Big Jonathan. In 1916, he became a greatly respected chief of the Selkirk people. He once had the largest house in Fort Selkirk and lent it to the community for hosting large gatherings such as potlatches and dances. After Big Jonathan's death, his house was taken down as a sign of respect. Many years later, it was reconstructed on its original site at Fort Selkirk, and a smaller replica was built in Pelly Crossing to house the Heritage Centre, as Terry Lee is about to mention. And with that avenue of work, I met thousands of people every summer. Um, that came through to go to Dawson, people from all over the world. And the Big Jonathan Heritage Center is a replica of Chief Big Jonathan House in Fort Selkirk. So we advertise a lot about Fort Selkirk in the Heritage Center. And with that, we people say, well, how do we get to Fort Selkirk? And for many, many years that I've worked there, there's just no one offering that service. Because it's Fort Selkirk is a remote area. You could only get there by riverboat. 
down river, down the Pelly River. And so when I was in that position, I always thought in the back of my mind, one of these days, I'm going to start this business if no one else does it. And I would say that was about a good 10 years ago. And, you know, here I am 10 years later. And so I was going to launch in 2020, but then COVID hit. And so, you know what, I just waited and took one day at a time. And I thought, you know, if I'm not going to start it, then no one will come or no one's going to know who we are. So let's just, my partner and I, who's the boat operator, William, I said, you know, let's just start this in 2021 in the summer and let's just, and we'll just target local people. So we were surprised to get 14 visitors for the summer of 2021. And it was mostly all people that always wanted to go to Fort Selkirk, but never had the chance to. So I was very proud to give them the opportunity to take them to Fort Selkirk last year. Amazing. I'd like to talk a bit more about uh, your tours in a moment. But first, can you just tell us a little bit about like, what does Fort Selkirk look like right now? So Fort Selkirk is Yukon's largest historic site. Um, It was once uh, way before the gold rush. It was where my ancestors lived. And we, I say we, because that's, you know, I'm many generations down the line that um, my, my ancestors lived there. And then the very first um, time our people met someone from the outside was Robert Campbell. Robert Campbell established a Hudson's Bay trading post at Fort Selkirk in 1848. He um, had a store that had all sorts of things that our people never seen before. You know, there was sugar, flour, there was rifles um, uh, that our people never seen before. And what we had for trade was furs and meat and fish so and that's something that Robert Campbell wanted so they traded across food for those items with that our people had and that ended the trading with the Chilcats the Clinkets because before that we used to trade with the the Clinket people Okay, so Fort Selkirk was sort of a meeting place where people uh, came in from the coast and met with the interior people to trade goods? Yes, yes. The trading post, um, I guess, uh, took out the need for trading with with the coastal people. Yes. Okay. So the trading then took took out the trading with the Chilcats at that time. Eventually, more people came. They established the RCMP. And then there was a postmistress and then there was a school that was established and more and more buildings began to get built there. There was a motel and a hotel. There was a couple of churches that were built and more and more people came and it was almost the capital of the Yukon at one time. Wow. Like that was, was that during the, like just after the gold rush when it almost it became was, the capital? Yes. Yes. It was during the gold rush. You know, it was the very first time that our people ever interacted with so many others from the outside. And with that, you know, unfortunately brought some diseases such as the smallpox where um, a lot of our people, and if you look at the First Nation graveyard in Fort Selkirk right now, that was mostly all of the people who passed away during that era um, in the late 1800s when the smallpox came through. And a lot of those graves are children, which is very sad to say, but um, no one could have survived 
through that pandemic during that time because there was no medicine there was no you know Tylenol to bring the fever down like we have nowadays for children when children wanted to go to school they had the option to go to school in Fort Selkirk because there was a small school but it wasn't a residential school if they wanted to get a higher education then parents would send their children to Dawson City which is just downriver from Fort Selkirk there are stories from the Van Bibbers that were there and they sent their five children down on a raft in the summertime. And there was, they were as young as five years old and the oldest guiding the raft was 14. Wow. You know what? I've, I think I read somewhere that as well. And like, we're talking like a few hundred kilometers, right? Down river. Yes. That's like, yeah, like four or five days on a raft from Fort Selkirk. Wow. No helicopter and, parenting there. Yeah. So Eventually, when the gold rush died down, our people were nomadic people. They didn't only live in Fort Selkirk. They lived in Coffee Creek. They lived by the Selwyn River, uh, which is further down from Coffee Creek. Um, up river, up the Pelly River, there's the McMillan River, and then Tatlaman, and then Minto. So they traveled. There was trails in a big circle that went far distances that just people just went to camp, to camp, to camp. Because in different places, there was moose, there was fish, there was trout. So they knew where to get their food sources. And, and they'd be traveling like overland and by boat? Overland, mm-hmm. overland by boat, dog team, walking the trails. Um, the people who came from Tatlaman would walk to Fort Selkirk to trade salmon for trout. So... It was pretty interesting reading about, you know, the history of my people and how they lived and the trails. Some of them still exist. If you fly around over that area, you can see the trails that are about 100 years old that still are embedded into the ground. Oh, that's so neat. When you talk about your people, that's the Selkirk First Nation. And then what's the, the ancestral people? So the ancestral people were once known as the Hucha Hudan, which is people of the flatland. It was unfortunately Robert Campbell that came and renamed Fort Selkirk after the main distributor to the Hudson's Bay. And his last name was Mr. Selkirk, Mm. who came from the lower 48 and what never visited the Yukon, not even Fort Selkirk. Unfortunately, the Selkirk First Nation is named after somebody that we don't even know. But what we decided as the heritage manager for Selkirk was to embed Hucha Hudan under any signs or postings that we have. And we try to bring that name alive. We have a dance group that used to be the Selkirk Spirit Dancers. We recently changed that name to Hucha Hudan Yelling, which means people of the flatland dancing. So yeah. That name is, it's in our final agreements. We can't change it because it'll just, you know, cost too much money to change it along the way. But mm-hmm. we know who we are. And as a heritage manager, I try to bring that name alive today. So Fort Selkirk today, there are some of these uh, historic buildings are still there, right? Some of them have been restored and there's also some some family cabins that are there. Is that right? Um, The layout of Fort Selkirk is, mm, I would say, to the west, there's all of the First Nations that lived um, above Fort Selkirk. 
um, the main town site, and then down below is the town site where there's the RCMP station, the postmistress, the churches, and the school. And then below that is the work camp where the restoration crew lives um, and the campground. So in 2011, Selkirk First Nation and Yukon government signed an agreement to share the site 50-50. So therefore, out of that came uh, a committee, which is made up of three staff of YG and three of Selkirk First Nation. And we meet regularly to go through the management plan, which was recently signed. The third edition was recently signed in 2021 in Fort Selkirk. That's like the Bible to how to manage the site. There's all sorts of chapters in there. One of them is to continue to maintain the old building. So we hire staff of 10 every summer to live in Fort Selkirk. And there's two interpreters that work all summer there that offer free guided tours to visitors that are there. We receive about over 300 river tours that come Mm. through Fort Selkirk. Time for a short break. We'll be right back. Do you have a Yukon North of Ordinary hoodie yet? What about a t-shirt? A toque? Mug? Check out the full product line at the retail store in Whitehorse, located on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Steel Street across from City Hall. Limited products can also be ordered from northofordinary.com. And while you're there, don't forget to pick up a magazine subscription. And now, back to the episode. Let's talk about your your sort of personal connection to the site. I I think you spent some time at Fort Selkirk growing up. Yeah, definitely. So growing up, my grandma was one of the very first cooks working for the work crew, uh, restoring the building. So she brought me along every summer. I spent many summers just, you know, trying to keep busy. And so there was other children there too. So we we would have fun. We would sit in the school and pretend we were the teacher and the student. And um, we would pretend that we saw ghosts in the buildings, even though we didn't. Be a really fun place <laughs> to grow up. Yeah. And then, you know, there's the forest in the back. So we would play, you know, kick the can or hide and seek. And then there was always natural stuff such as picking strawberries and raspberries and black currants that grow naturally there. And we, you know, caught rides on the tractor that had a trailer and we rang the church bells and, you know, we were trying to keep busy, but we weren't so much nuisance. And um, at the time, the popularity was writing on the walls of the historic buildings. So, you know, being a little kid, I didn't know. So I'd grab a black marker and write Terry Isaac. (laughs) 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 I know. And here I am, you know, managing the building and trying to help restore the historic buildings and you know here I am writing management plans and user agreements that you know there's no drinking or alcohol there's no writing graffiti on the buildings and then my name's still on that door to this day so (laughs) (laughs) I laugh about it I you know sometimes I share the story when I do my tours but um at the same time it's like I didn't know then and they were just beginning to really uh, manage the place in the 80s so at the time no one was really managing the place um, and you know unfortunately a lot of artifacts walked away because they were open and they were out displayed but people thought that 
they could just take it. And so they would take it. And so pretty much all of the buildings are empty. There's hardly any artifacts left. Whatever is left is either stored at Yukon government's um, archival place, or we have some stored in a building that still needs to be displayed that we could show the visitors, but there needs to be better planning on how to preserve the last bit of artifacts by maybe putting it under plexiglass now. Yeah, I guess hard to protect a site where like river access people coming down and wandering through and yeah, kind of the Wild West before there was rules to protect these items. Yes. And we're getting better now. I'm glad that we're at this place. I mean, too bad it's many centuries later, but um, we're doing it now. So tell me how your tours work. I think you you meet people um, near Pelly Crossing and then uh, boat them to Fort Selkirk? Yes. So I'm offering three packages now. Uh, one is day tours, which I started with last year, and that's ongoing from June till September. And that tour, we meet in Minto, which is 20 minutes from Pelly Crossing. It's closer to the Yukon River. The highway is closer to the Yukon River. And then we take the hour tour on the boat, and I tell stories along the way, interesting stories that a lot of people don't even know, even locals. And Like history stories? Or yeah, history stories? stories. Yes, history stories. Can you give me just and like one tidbit of one of those stories? Yeah, so the old Alaska Highway uh, went mostly along the river. And then um, you could see sediments along the hillside where the, hot, where the old road was. Not the current Klondike Highway, but the old Alaska Highway is how, what they called it in mm. the early 1900s. And then they were to um, get on, they go to the Blanchard's Fish Camp. And that's as far as you go. And then you get onto a steamboat and then you take the rest of the way down to um, Dawson City. Wow. So that would have been like a, a wagon road people would have been taking to connect. Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. And, and then we get to Fort Selkirk. We do our tour, which is about an hour and a half. Uh, we, you know, check out all the buildings. We talk about the ancestors that were there before and then Robert Campbell bringing his Hudson's Bay company and then where we are now really good information that people need to know how do people react to being at Fort Selkirk and, and hearing these stories they feel a real there's something about Fort Selkirk it's really the magic magic and the mystery and they feel at home almost even though they've never seen the site they may have seen some pictures online but being there gives you some sort of comfort and people feel at home where they say you know you should start offering weekend tours because I really just want to stay here and camp here and I said yeah that's a really good idea I think I might offer that next year so that leads me into I'm offering a package for weekend tours all-inclusive. I provide everything, including the food and the camping gear. And also we are offering family fish camp tours. So our family owns a fish camp along the Pelly River. And there's only four weeks out of the season that we harvest salmon. We're limited now to the amount of salmon we're allowed to get. So uh, we're still allowed to harvest salmon, but um, 
we want to show people what we do at our camp and how we harvest it. And my, I have two elders in my family, my grandma and my grandpa, and they are ecstatic to meet people and share stories. Do they uh, spend those four weeks like camped at the fish camp? Yes, we do anyway. So they'll be there all the time. And I just have to bring the people. And how does it work? Is there a fish wheel or are they using nets? Not use a fish wheel. We used to way back, you know, in the 1800s. Um, but that just kind of went away and we just went into net fishing. And so that's what we use today is the net fish net for salmon. And then how is the salmon uh, processed? The ways we do it in our family is first we hear from Dawson when the salmon arrive there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's kind of like um, smoke signals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and then, you know, everybody gets ready to go to fish camp and some people rush off right away, but we like to wait a couple of weeks. So we usually go the end of July so that all the first run goes and the first run is usually the female salmon. And so we allow that first run to go first. And then the second is the chum salmon. And then the third run is the king salmon. And so we usually go to our fish camp when the second run comes. So that's when the chum and mostly the males stream upstream to the Pelly River. And so we have less females going into our fishnet. And even if we do get a female going into the fishnet and she looks healthy, we throw her back in. Okay, so that she can deposit her eggs and yeah. Yes. And so we get the salmon, put it in the bucket, drive back to our fish camp. We usually gut it along the river and fillet it up at our cache. And then we strip it, which means (laughs) uh, we put little lines in or we could strip it into slices like dry, dry jerky and hang it to dry under smoke we don't use any kind of wood either we usually use alder which is um which grows naturally in the area and that gives a better taste to the dry fish afterwards so it's it's not a heat process it's a smoke process it's a smoke process yeah why is it important for you to be offering these tours to fort selkirk So as some people don't know, there is no hardly any Indigenous tourism in my area. Northern Toshone is made up of Mayo, Pelly, and Carmacks. We're a very vast traditional territory right in the middle of the Yukon. There is no Indigenous tourism except for myself in this area. I would really like to see more people tag along and open up their businesses as well. We know uh, there is an increased interest uh, internationally in uh, Indigenous-led tourism. Why do you think it's important that you're sharing these stories of your own culture? I really think it's important that people hear about the true history of Selkirk First Nation, just because, or even the Northern Toshone people, or even Yukon First Nations people, because there's not much of it out there. Because there's not many Indigenous people that are doing the tours in the Yukon. There's probably about a good eight of us altogether. The stories being shared at the moment is a lot about gold rush. And that's, that's great. I, that's what I learned in school too. I didn't really learn about my Yukon First Nations history in school. I learned it from my elders growing up. I read a lot of 
the oral history that was documented throughout the years. And I'm the heritage manager too. So I, I've learned along the years about who we are. And I also live it uh, with my family. I have three children and a husband and we hunt and we fish mostly. You know, we do a little snaring here and there when there's the time to do so on my grandma's trap line. But um, we try to live a really traditional lifestyle just so that it's never lost. And our children know that if you ever get hungry, you go to the land and you get fish and you harvest a moose or caribou. Therefore, it's important to me to share this knowledge, not only to my people, but to visitors that are coming here to give them a good concept of who we are as Yukon First Nations people. Terry Lee, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Of course. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of Yukon North of Ordinary, the podcast. Please share this episode and leave us a review. It really helps. Subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also subscribe to our print magazine by going to northofordinary.com. While you're there, check out Yukon North of Ordinary merchandise. And for a full product line, visit the Bricks and Mortar store in Whitehorse, located on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Steel Street, across from City Hall. There's a great selection of clothing, hats, stickers, glassware, and more. Do you have something to say about this episode? We'd love to hear from you. Find us on social media at North of Ordinary. You can also contact me, Karen McCall, with feedback or story ideas. Editor at northofordinary.com is my email. Thanks to the whole team at North of Ordinary Media. Our podcast artwork is by art director Manu Kegenhoff. Our music is by Head Candy and tribeofnoise.com. Thanks for listening. We have another episode coming out soon. I hope you listen in. Thank you.